2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Tamara J. Walker, who's the author of the book, Beyond the Shores, A History of African Americans Abroad, published by Crown, a trademark of Penguin Random House. Dr. Walker, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk with you about this book. So as an av- avid African-American traveler myself, I read it with a lot of interest and um, and delight. It was a wonderful book. And so the book chronicles the stories of African-Americans traveling beyond the United States. Uh, we'd like to begin the podcast with this question where, um, where you introduce yourself. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you uh, chose to write this book?
0: Sure, so I am an historian by training and am a associate professor of Africana Studies at Barnard College at Columbia University. And I came to write this book, um, it's kind of hard to separate the idea for this book and the process of researching this book from my work as an historian of Latin America, because I wouldn't have become an historian of Latin America had I not had early travel experiences um, in middle school, and then later in high school. So these were all experiences that really kind of shaped the the questions that I started to ask as a scholar, the places I became interested in, just becoming interested in Latin America in particular, but also just becoming interested in the African diaspora. So that's kind of the story at the heart of the book, my own formation, the family I grew up as part of, and then the, the process of kind of over the course of becoming an historian, asking the questions that historians tend to ask, I started to kind of turn the historian's lens onto myself and onto my family. And that's kind of the the reason for the structure of the book too, which I know we'll get into more. But I just saw myself and my family as inseparable from this larger story about African-Americans going and staying and sometimes returning home from abroad and just wanted to think about how to, to Tell that story in a way that felt honest to who I am, and also that would be a tribute to my,
1: my family. Yeah, thank you for that. And we will get into that a little bit later about you and including your story and your family story in the in the book. And but right. in talking about how you chose to tell the story, um, each chapter of Beyond the Shores features like one or two people, like a small group of people, and a different location. So you know, different people in different countries and you go beyond this more popular narrative of like josephine baker in paris and you talk about for example like richard wright in buenos aires argentina and black agronomists joseph roan and oliver golden in the soviet union so those are just two examples from the book but i wondered how you chose the examples that you included in the book yeah so i chose i think the
0: the structure before i chose the example so i knew i wanted to go decade decade by decade, starting in the 1920s and continuing until the present. And I knew I wanted to kind of start the book and end the book in the same place in Paris, in part because it looms so large within the history of African-Americans abroad. And it also looms large in my own life in terms of it being one of the first places I traveled to as a teenager. And I knew just from my own travel experiences as an adult going to Paris, that there were these companies like Black Paris Tours and Walking the Spirit that were really focused on retracing the steps of early African-American entertainers who had gone to Paris. And so I knew that I wanted to start the book and end the book with that story of the people who first started making their way to Paris and the people who continue to go to Paris, both to pursue their own experiences and adventures, but also to pay homage to the experiences of those who came before us. And I think so much of that is so integral to the African-American experience more broadly that I knew I had that as my scaffolding and in, in between, because I think like an historian, I think chronologically, I knew I wanted to tell a story that unfolded over time and that told us something about the United States over the course of the past century, what was happening in the United States that was making this a place worth leaving I also wanted to talk about the places that African Americans were traveling to over the course of the 20th century to take us beyond Paris and to think about what factors were shaping those places as destinations for African Americans, what made them appealing to African Americans, what made African Americans, in many cases, appealing to people in those places. And so that's where I came up with the idea of moving both chronologically and geographically, with each chapter representing a particular region in the world. And then from there, I started to think about what people kind of best represented that push and pull in terms of the push out of the U.S., the pull to other places, and what was at stake more broadly for African Americans. And so instead of kind of telling a story that for each decade talked about a lot of different people, I thought it would Kind of get us closer to the experience to focus on one or two people and one or two places. So already, as I'm talking about it, you can tell that I didn't stick entirely to that structure, like not so religiously to that structure. But that I thought would give us a good framework to to play within. And then as far as who I wanted to talk about in each of those chapters, um, it started to it started to kind of unfold in a really um, in a really easy way, for lack of a, a better term, like there there were some examples that were harder to come up with, but it was very clear to me, for example, in the chapter on the 1920s, that I wanted to talk about someone other than Josephine Baker, That's someone whose name is synonymous with Paris in the 1920s. And so I wanted to kind of acknowledge that truth, that history, that understanding that so many of us have. But... I also wanted to signal that there were more people than just Josephine Baker going to Paris in the 1920s. More entertainers, and Florence Mills emerged as the the perfect vehicle for telling that story because she had both a similar path to Paris. She was often compared to Josephine Baker, especially in Paris, because Josephine Baker became sort of the the template for which Parisians would kind of think about black people, black Americans. And so I thought it was really interesting to kind of work through that comparison, especially because sometimes Josephine Baker was favored, was comparatively um, favored or favorably compared to Florence Mills. And sometimes the opposite was true in terms of Florence Mills kind of receiving more favorable comparisons to Josephine Baker, often for really complicated and racist reasons where Florence Mills had a lighter complexion. And in one of the newspapers I cite from the era, um, that that's something that the author is really leaning into, this idea that it was kind of appalling that someone like Florence Mills didn't have more success in the U.S. that led her to come to Paris. And one of the writers says, you know, if she were white, she would have a much different career than she does now. So... There were lots of things to kind of work with in terms of the comparison between Florence Mills and Josephine Baker. Um, I also thought that her story, because it ends so tragically and so early, it kind of reminds us that this is not just a story about adventure and possibilities, but also about challenges and, and tragedy. And so I thought it was a fitting way to open this story that gives us a window onto the complexity of the African-American experience abroad. Because often, especially when it comes to Paris, we tend to lean into the romantic aspects of this time and place, especially when we compare it to the same time in the US context. And so it was important to me to kind of open the door onto this complex world. And then, and I won't go chapter by chapter, but, As I kind of thought through the unfolding of the 20th century, I wanted to lean into that kind of theme of of tragedy and the the theme of just complexity. And so with the agronomist who I talk about in the 1930s, I end up talking about two of them for similar reasons um, to why I focused on Florence Mills, because you have in one case, Oliver Golden, someone who decides to throw his lot in with the Soviet Union and to live out his days in the Soviet Union, where in the case of Joseph Rowan, you have someone who spent a couple of years there, but ends up returning home to the United States. And so I thought that it would be important to kind of showcase those two paths and what was at stake in making each of those choices for those individuals. And then moving to a place like Argentina, I thought it would be kind of fun to have someone who we're familiar with, someone like Richard Wright, in a more unfamiliar setting. And there's lots to play with in the case of Buenos Aires, which has a reputation and nickname as the Paris of the Americas. So the idea that we think of Richard Wright in relation to one Paris, but here's another Paris that loomed large in his life, even though it didn't loom very large in his writing. And so that presented an interesting kind of mystery for me to solve, why it is that he talked so little or wrote so little about his time in Buenos Aires that's a place that is also important to me. It's where I studied abroad when I was in college. And so I was able to kind of speak to that place, obviously not in the context of the late 1940s and early 1950s, but in terms of its relationship to US style racism and how different it is, but also how many ways in which it kind of strikes familiar chords um, for African-Americans. And so that was the reason behind that choice. And then, I wanted to break out of the usual kind of Europe-centered focus of stories about African Americans going abroad. And then for my own edification, I wanted to break out of the Latin America focus. My own research is on Latin America. Most of my travel has been within Latin America. And I thought of this book as providing a kind of armchair travel experience. And so I wanted to have a travel experience of my own in writing the book. And so I wanted to look at different places that I knew African Americans were making an impact and that told us something else about the U.S., about these other parts of the world, about the complexity of being Black and abroad, which is why I focused, for example, on Kim Bass in 1980s Tokyo. I also thought the 1980s were a really interesting moment to kind of think about the way that popular culture traveled. And it's the era of Michael Jackson and so many music acts that were taking the world by storm. And that's always been really interesting to me, the way that pop culture travels and the experience that African-Americans who've been travel have against the backdrop of that pop cultural landscape. And so I thought that he would just in that sense kind of represent a really interesting set of experiences in a place like Tokyo. Um, and so, yeah, there were just a lot of different questions that were driving my choices of, of protagonists, people who had really interesting life stories, um, people who were either familiar to us and we could learn something new about them or new people that we don't really think about when we think about African Americans going abroad, who I think should be part of the story because their experiences represent so much of a a larger experience and have something to tell us that we don't already know. Um, And some of this was also connected to my own family experience of just wishing that I'd asked more questions when my grandparents were alive and some of my older relatives were alive. And so I wanted to take the opportunity to preserve stories and ask questions that I didn't get to ask of my own relatives, but that I could ask of some of these folks like Kim Bath and Herman Debose who are incredible storytellers and thoughts of such incredible memories and detail in their own right and I thought, that it would be important work to fold them into this larger story and elevate them to the same sort of household name status as folks like Richard Wright and Josephine Baker mm-hmm. and insert them into this narrative that so many ordinary people had always been part of, but not necessarily who we think of when we think about African-Americans abroad.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. That is fascinating. Um, you mentioned the armchair travel experience and I definitely found that to be the case as I was reading it. I, I enjoyed that. I liked going to these quote unquote, going to these different places, like going to Germany, going to Vietnam. Um, you know, just, I I, I mean, and I, obviously, as I said, I'm a traveler. So I really enjoy that kind of, that kind of perspective. And yeah, I've ne- I'd never heard of Florence Mills. Obviously I'd heard of Josephine Baker. So you de- definitely introduced me to different people who I'd never heard of before. And I'd never, known these stories. And so um, this next question is a little bit, a little bit long, but I I wanted to ask it because as I was reading, at the same time I was reading your book, I came across this opinion essay in the New York Times. And it was by an African American ballet dancer named Gabe Stone Scheyer. And it's relatively recent. And one thing he writes is that he left the United States at 15 to dance in Moscow. And, and so he goes to Russia and he writes, quote, in Russia, I found this freedom. There was no history to support American stereotypes. And so I was so alien, so foreign, that I was the author of my past, present, and future for the first time. And so I bring up this example because your book shows that there's a history of African-Americans going to Russia, as you, as you just briefly um, touched on with Joseph Rohn and Oliver Golden. And so why did African-Americans go abroad to Russia Um, what were they escaping in the United States and what did they find uh, when they got there to, to the Soviet Union? Yeah, so in the case of
0: Oliver Golden and Joseph Rowan and the agronomists that they were traveling with in the 1930s, they were on one hand escaping the racism and violence of the Jim Crow South and their exclusion from professional opportunities that they had gone to college to train for. I mean, in both cases, these were men who were either working as Pullman porters or planning to work as Pullman porters, despite having these scientific backgrounds and skills that during the Great Depression would have been tremendously useful in the United States. So they were fleeing this context, but they were also pursuing something, right? They were pursuing the opportunity to be taken seriously in their profession. And that's something that the Soviets were doing for complicated reasons that I'll get into. But what they were doing was pursuing these opportunities that were not available to them and the United States opportunities to make a difference. They were helping in the context of Uzbekistan, people to cultivate their land and to grow fruits and vegetables and to survive in an unforgiving landscape and unforgiving climate. And they had the skills to do it. And the Soviets were positioning them to take leadership positions in these agronomy collectives where they were in charge and they, because they had studied these things for years and had wisdom that was lacking in this context, they they were elevated as the experts that they were. And so in many ways, there was no question as far as Golden and Rowan were concerned that these were once in a lifetime opportunities. But that was also kind of what was complicated for them about it because they shouldn't have had to travel so far in order to be taken seriously for their expertise and to have the opportunity to not only showcase their skills, but to hone them even further. Um, on the other kind of side of this coin was what the Soviets were were seeking to do with African Americans. And I think that's where that story of the 1930s in, in my book is is really interesting and, and has this kind of layer of dimension that we don't always get when it comes to following African-Americans abroad, which is that the the Soviet government was kind of using African-Americans as a cudgel against the United States. And I mean, especially in the post-World War II era, the United States ends up kind of positioning itself on the world stage as this bastion and beacon of democracy. But even in the 1930s, um, The U.S. was attempting to carve out a particular position on the world stage. And the Soviets understood because of the circulation of certain narratives about the United States. And during the time that Rowan and Golden were in the Soviet Union, the Scottsboro Boys case was taking the world by storm. It was circulating outside of the United States in part because people were circulating outside of the United States and telling the story of the Scottsboro Boys, one of the mothers of two of the boys who had been arrested was traveling around to make the case to draw international attention and put pressure on the United States to intervene in this local case. Um, And so people understood in other parts of the world, not just the Soviet Union, but in Asia and Africa, other places that I explore in the book, that there was a tension between the way the U.S. was attempting to present itself on the world stage and the way it was actually treating many of its citizens. And so in this kind of international contests for global domination, African-Americans end up being a, being used as a, as a cudgel against the US. And they understood that they weren't naive to that. They understood that they were small players in this kind of large international contest. But they also understood that there were ways that they could reap benefits from that. Um, and that it would put them in, in positions to have a bit of authority and self-determination that they weren't getting in the U.S. And some, like Golden especially, embraced the, the communist cause. Things were a bit more ambiguous in the case of Joseph Rowan, although he, whether it was because he was enlisted by the Soviets or because he believed really strongly in what he was saying himself, he spoke to the black press in the U.S. when he came back to the U.S. for what he thought would be a short visit, but that turned out to be his, his eventual t- return to the US. Um, he spoke on behalf of the Soviets and the opportunities that they were making available to African-Americans in an attempt to lure African-Americans to the Soviet Union and pursue similar kinds of opportunities, not just in agronomy, but in entertainment and other sectors where African-Americans were gaining high profiles and getting opportunities in the Soviet Union. And I mentioned this in the chapter that there were quite a few people that Golden and Rowan and their families and colleagues crossed paths with in the Soviet Union, including Langston Hughes and some other writers and and creatives who were in the Soviet Union at the time, um, including for at least a decade, there was another African-American entertainer who had been in the Soviet Union since the 19-teens, the early 1920s. And so what was happening in the 1930s was just the latest in a series of moments that represented the Soviet Union's attempt to use African Americans as weapons against the United States. And African Americans understood what was going on, but also understood that they could still benefit from these these dynamics and escape the U.S.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was so interesting when I was reading about it. Um, because obviously, as you said, you go beyond, you know, Paris and entertainment to think about like professional work and employment. And I had, you know, I'm a a student of African-American history, but I I had yet not really thought about how college educated African-Americans who are fully trained in something could not get work. And so, you know, I just imagined you've Done all this preparation. You've had these dreams. You've had these hopes. Like I want to be an agronomist, and you do all the all the things, and then you can't get a job, and you're applying or working as a Pullman porter on a on a railroad, and then here comes another country saying, "We will let you do this thing that you've wanted to do your whole life." So I I just thought about those kind of vistas that get opened up. Um, yeah,
0: and I guess the thing I would add to that is that you know on one hand why not go, right? Especially if the choice is so so stark between doing something that you have trained to do and dreamt about doing and a job that is there for the taking because that's what African-Americans were expected to to do, right? Um, But the thing I try to show is that it still didn't make it an easy decision to leave, right? And Someone like Joseph Rowan, who grew up in, in, ironically, in Kremlin, Virginia, um, really hesitated. And so many of the other agronomists had hesitated. Oliver Golden was a slightly different case because he had previously traveled to and lived in Moscow and had been involved in communist activism. And so he was on board and trying to get other people on board. But for these other folks, there was a real dilemma in terms of whether they should have to leave their home country and the difficulty of imagining leaving their families behind for a place they had never been and had only heard about and couldn't know for certain if it was going to be any different in terms of the brass tacks of existence, right? They knew they would have these jobs and they understood that the Soviet Union was really showing a really meaningful kind of support for them and their success. But it didn't mean that on a day-to-day basis they would really be escaping racism. They couldn't know until they got there. And so it was a risk that they were taking. And I think That was something that felt really important for me to draw out in the book that because so much of the narrative about African-Americans going abroad is rooted in the sense of adventure and romance, that we tend to leave aside the part that involves separating from one's family and community and sense of home and belonging, even under the dire circumstances of Jim Crow, even in the hostile environment that was created by racism in the U.S. South and throughout the country, but that what African Americans had always managed to do was create community and forms of resilience. And they knew that they would be leaving that behind. And so it wasn't just this easy decision that didn't come with any hesitation or ambivalence or even sadness about what they had to leave behind. And so that was something that for me was really important to to capture in every chapter of the book, but especially in that one.
1: Yeah, and you definitely, um... You know, capture that well and you take us on the ground in these different places, showing us like how people are adapting and and changing and things like that. Um, And you so you already mentioned this a a little bit. So I wanted to dive into it more is you including your own and your family stories of going abroad. Um, and so the, the book, um, and you mentioned this like right in the beginning was partially propelled by your grandparents traveling abroad, um, for many years. And I believe your grandfather was in the military. I found it interesting, um, you know, in in one of the chapters you mentioned how you didn't know that they had lived abroad until you started asking questions maybe as a teenager, like you saw some things they had around the ha- around their home and said, Oh, where did that come from? And they said, Oh, when we were living in such and such place, we, we bought that thing and and you didn't seem to know that they had done all this travel. And so I wondered why wasn't this travel talked about? Um, but also just more more broadly, why did you want to include, you know, your own story of traveling abroad in the book?
0: Yeah, I think in terms of that first question, it's hard to say whether they didn't talk about it or whether I simply wasn't listening or paying enough attention. Um, and one of the things I think I say in the book and that I think so much about in my own life is that grandparents are wasted on the young because I just was, you know, in the way that so many kids are self-absorbed and I didn't really think of them as having lives that preceded, you know, me arriving on the scene. Um But it was always there in some ways, that story, in terms of the objects that surrounded us and the maybe even the the foods that we ate um, and just their way of being. And I think for them, maybe it wasn't something that felt so unusual, just given that at the time I was born in Colorado Springs, my grandparents moved to Colorado Springs, and that is in many ways a military town. It's other things. But it's also a military town. And so I think the story of so many Black people, especially in Colorado Springs, is a story of having been all over the world. And so in that particular context and environment, it wasn't such a remarkable detail. Um, But certainly the more I asked questions, the more I learned. Um, There are still things that they weren't very forthright about in terms of what the experience of returning to the u s after all that time away was like for them. but again, that's because I didn't really ask, you know, but my grandparents were the kind of people who would answer questions as as we asked them. I learned that the older I got and they would sometimes offer up details um, that would then you know plant new questions that i would I would answer. but yeah, so I know that's not the most satisfying answer, but it is this interesting kind of trick of memory and and difficulty of, of reconciling like how much of what I don't know is because they didn't talk about it or because I didn't ask about it um, but in terms of what made me write the book it's it's kind of connected because I realized that there are so many things that as I was writing about these other people who form the spine of the book the kind of protagonists of each decade by decade chapter that I started to wonder about In my own family, especially as I made the decision to add these memoir elements in a more streamlined way um, and kind of consistent way. It wasn't just going to be like some brief and pleading references to myself and to my family and the spine chapters. I really wanted these vignette chapters to link um, one chapter to the other. And so that's when I started to lean more into both my own memories, but also my skills as an historian to at least try to get as close to the answer as possible to some of my questions. Um, That's also why I ended up, for example, focusing in my chapter on the 1950s on maple grammar, because I didn't know very much about what it was like for my grandmother as a military wife to be stationed with her husband in Austria. Um, And what I knew of Mabel Grammar as I was starting to kind of outline the book was that she was a military wife. She was not stationed in Austria. She was stationed with her husband in Germany. And so I felt like, okay, that could get me a little bit closer to understanding something about my grandma being a woman in this environment. Obviously, unlike my grandma who had multiple children, Mabel Grammar arrived in Germany without any children. And it wasn't until she started helping to place the so-called Brown babies, the children born to African American soldiers and German women with families, including in her own family, that she started to have kind of parenthood be part of her experience in Germany. But nonetheless, this experience of being affiliated with the military, but not employed by the military in the way that their, their husbands were was an interesting kind of place for me to start to fill in the gaps with my own family. And again, to remember that like, we were part of a larger story and that we were not the only ones having these experiences and so it meant thinking more expansively and that's also why i kind of did do the memoir bits to just have those reminders at different turns that we were part of this story and a small part of it but an important part of it nonetheless
1: yeah, I like those touches of the book. I like learning about your family stories and, and your own particular stories of like studying abroad and learning about different places um, in, in, in school and, and things like that. It kind of made me reflect on my own life and my own like uh, introduction to, to thinking about living abroad. Um, And so you mentioned Mabel Grammer, and I was going to ask a question about her, I guess, in the next, um, with this next question, but it was also about how the countries that African Americans travel to many times, you know, they offer them these opportunities, which you talked about, but they were, of course, not free from their own forms of anti-Black racism or their own forms of discrimination against their, their own others. Um, And, and you carefully recount this in the book. Like you don't let these countries off the hook and let them just be these like utopias of opportunity. You know, they, they themselves have their, have their own issues. And for example, you talk about Mabel Grammer who goes to Germany and she ends up arranging adoptions for these mixed race babies um, who are, you know, adoptions to African American families in the United States. And I saw that, of course, is also kind of propelled by this like racism in, in Germany. Um, and so so how did African Americans understand and navigate the racism that they found in these other places?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it varied from person to person, place to place and, and moment to moment. I mean, I think with someone like Mabel Grammer, it probably wasn't until she encountered these so-called brown babies that she started to really kind of reckon with the experience of Afro-Germans and still didn't didn't really talk very much about Afro-Germans beyond the the brown babies, but I think that was a, a moment where she realized that whatever experience of welcome she had as someone that was connected to the U.S. military presence in Germany that was not representative of this this larger story about Afro-Germans. But again, what I was trying to do in the book was to also um, try to address that landscape and context, even if the people themselves who I follow to those places didn't necessarily think about or address it, just to kind of give the reader a sense of what was going on, what else was happening, what was outside the frame, because in many ways, and in all honesty, I think a lot of the people that I follow were probably most preoccupied with how different their experience was in this place compared to the U.S. than they necessarily were with the experiences of local Black populations. And some of that, again, like I say that with an asterisk, just recognizing that that's not True across the board and in every instance, but with the people who were connected to the military, for example, the military constrains so much of your your life in terms of the routines and the roots of daily life that they might not have had too many encounters with other Afro Germans, um, and so there's a bit of a tension in the book between what the the subjects themselves were seeing and the the picture that I was trying to paint as the, the the narrator to just help the reader get a more kind of comprehensive bird's eye view of that d- dynamic to understand how local populations were treating African-Americans, what their kind of frame of reference was for their encounters with African-Americans, thinking about African-Americans in relation to other black populations, other immigrant populations, um, to just kind of add some some dimension to what we were seeing, as told through the perspective of some of these protagonists in their in their letters and the articles they wrote, um, the stories they told, that they didn't always have that same comprehensive view that we can now have with the benefit of history and hindsight.
1: Yeah. Um, And so I I think uh, this isn't something that was like necessarily like explicitly addressed in the book, but it is like, it's an undertone. It's a, it's a theme throughout the different stories. And it's, I guess, one of like adaptation to living abroad. Um, And so I'm sure as you know, like going abroad and spending a lot of time there, it can be uncomfortable, right? For different, and obviously different people experience it in different ways. Um, And so you, you know, you have to learn a new way of life, a new language, and then Like African-Americans strike me as being as as being like particularly um, possibly particularly cautious about this discomfort because we might feel this discomfort in our own country. And so the idea of then going to another country to feel further discomfort and even more discomfort um, can be overwhelming. Um, So these are just like different kinds of particularities that African-Americans would have to address um, and so I wondered um, how people in your chapters, or if you have you know, examples, um, how they face the challenges of adapting and learning these new customs.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of them relied really heavily on the black press in the same way that so many of us contemporary travelers rely really heavily on Instagram and TikTok to just give us a sense of what is in store. And so that's also why I wanted to really foreground the black press in this book to show that, you know, wherever in the world African-Americans had gone, the black press was there, sometimes before the other visitors and certainly before the people that I write about in the book. But sometimes it was because they saw the African-Americans were were venturing out to these places. Um, Paris in the 1920s, I think, is a really great example of that, that it was kind of as entertainers were making their way to the city that the Black press started sending reporters and, and travel writers really to those places um, to then kind of help to usher in this new era of, of leisure travel that African-Americans were participating in. Um, so I think that's one way that they they prepared themselves. Um, there was also, and it's, it's interesting because initially when I proposed this book, I called it the Global Green Book, because I wanted to kind of center the Negro Traveler's Green Book um, in the story and to show the international dimensions that that story always had and that the Green Book itself always had. The Green Book, especially during the dawn of the, the jet age in the 1950s and 1960s, was always making reference to international destinations. Um, Canada and Mexico, for sure, but even Europe. And so I remember when I was first kind of really thinking about centering this book on the Green Book, I was spending a lot of time reading through those, um, through their coverage of international destinations. And one of the things that really struck me was that, you know, instead of thinking so much about where it was safe to stay and eat, and who would take your money, as they did, and their coverage of US destinations. When it came to international destinations, there was something that was more lighthearted um, and more kind of focused on just the experience, like what you would actually do once your needs were met, your needs for a place to sleep and a place to eat. And so they were covering shopping and thinking about currency conversions and just, you know, other types of experience based aspects of, of travel rather than just being stuck in the muck of logistics, which is really um, a prominent feature of the, the Green Book when it comes to U.S. destinations. It's just kind of a logistical tool. So I was kind of struck by how much more of uh, a kind of modern travel guide the Green Book became when it was able to focus on international destinations. And I think that mirrored the way a lot of African-Americans, especially. the first half of the 20th century were thinking about these international destinations, like the absence of Jim Crow meant that people weren't so anxious about the logistics. Um, They weren't necessarily naive to other aspects of the experience, and they weren't necessarily thinking that they were going to receive a warm welcome, and I'm sure many of them had the same anxieties that the people I, I write about had in terms of whether they would be traveling a great distance only to encounter the same kinds of inhumane treatment and discrimination and exclusion that they were finding in the U.S. Um, but I, I think that a lot of people were just celebrating the fact that they could, they could just move freely and check into hotels based on where they wanted to stay and not where they were allowed to stay. Um, but I think it gets more complicated, um, again, at different points in time and different regional contexts. But I do think that there was there was a sense of freedom when it came to just planning trips, not necessarily taking the trips and being on the trips, but there 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 was a sense of like, okay, this is this is going to be an escape. This is going to be an alternative to what defines US travel, right? That experience of of anxiety and worry and and just kind of being stuck in the the mire logistics and again i'm not romanticizing the other side of it but i do think that does a lot of, of heavy lifting that recognition that leaving the u.s meant leaving behind jim crow segregation as they understood it to a degree i mean the other thing i talk about in the book is the fact that like wherever in the world white americans were traveling they would encounter african americans who they didn't want to see and they wanted to these white travelers wanted to impose jim crow wherever they, went. they wanted to take that with them as part of their own travel experience to feel like they, they weren't experiencing something too different. And maybe that speaks to kind of fundamental differences in why African-Americans were traveling compared to their white counterparts who wanted something a bit more familiar, whereas for so many African-Americans, part of what was appealing was just how different it would be from the U.S., or that was at least the hope that it would be really different from the U.S. Mm-hmm. and an escape from the U.S.
2: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, as you were just earlier in your answer when you were talking about the um, the African American press, I literally thought, oh, the Global Green Book, and then you said that name, <laughs> the Global Green Book. So I, I love that that what that how that reference like instantly comes to mind when thinking about African Americans in travel, and then oh, but it actually extends beyond the United States. So um, maybe there's also more to be written or said about. That as well. So beyond beyond the book. Um, so that, that was fascinating. Um, and so you kind of just talked about this uh, at the end of the at the end of your answer. And because I was wondering for you, like if you, if you think about like a larger meaning of African Americans going abroad. And I asked this because you know, there are these similarities with other travelers where we experience this novelty of travel. When I say we African-Americans, we experience the pleasure of discovery, leisure, you know, learning about difference. Um, But then African-Americans aren't seen as like, quote unquote, typical Americans. Sometimes we're not seen as Americans at all abroad or in the United States. Um, And so I wondered just for you, like, what is the significance or meaning of African-American travel abroad?
0: Yeah, I guess I would answer that in two ways. The first, based on kind of the contemporary landscape of of international travel that you're part of, that I'm part of. And I think what it means for contemporary travelers is an opportunity to feel, and actually now that I'm saying that, I realize that the answer is kind of the same, that like often what people are looking for, even without explicitly stating it, is the opportunity to feel their and inhabit their their full humanity because so much of the story of being black in the united states is having our humanity denied to us in our work lives and our social lives and our economic lives and part of what is appealing about certain destinations especially um, is that opportunity to inhabit one's full humanity i think the unspoken goal both past and present has also been to experience being American because it's often when leaving the US that we feel most American um, for better or for worse. Because like you said, African-Americans aren't always seen as the the typical American, like when people in, in Europe and Asia and other parts of the world kind of think of American tourists. And even when Americans themselves think of American tourists, we still think of white people, but that doesn't mean that we're not being treated as Americans. Like once we open our mouths and speak English, right. Or even based on how we're dressed and the way we move through the world, um, we're still moving through the world as Americans. We still have the privileged associated with American passports that whether people, are conscious of it or not, or even willing to acknowledge it or not, I do think that's part of the, the appeal of going abroad, especially given how rare it is in the United States to really inhabit that feeling of being American and the notion of patriotism is always so complicated for African Americans. Um, but there is this, this undeniable privilege that comes from being an American abroad in in many parts of the world, not in every part of the world. Um, and so I think that's part of kind of what drives African American travelers in the present day and what had driven many African American travelers in the past. I think the other part of it is harder to kind of talk about in terms of collective experiences and motivations because and this is what I tried to convey in the book which is that you know for every place in the world there were different types of people going to those parts of the world and had different motivations some that were connected to their profession some that were connected to their their upbringing um, some that were just about the pursuit of individuality and self-discovery. And so I never want to kind of paint everyone with the same brush um, or at least not allow room for just that kind of harder to categorize set of motivations that are intrinsic to all of us as individuals. People have so many reasons um, that are in part influenced by race and gender that motivate them to travel abroad. And that's something that I was trying to get at I think when I was excavating my own travel experiences and what it was that was making me want to travel um, from the earliest ages and obviously I'm a black person, black American. And so that's that's the scaffolding of every decision I make and experience that I have. But the thing I was also trying to get at was something a, a little more nuanced as well, which is what was it about me at these different points in my own life that made particular regions so appealing to me or made the idea of escaping from my my town and my state and then I guess also my country um what was it that was going on in my life that made these things appealing just to try to get at what that those motivations were for the other people I wrote about who I couldn't Ask those questions of, and sometimes the materials available to me didn't necessarily lend insight into that. Um, And so that's where I ended up, you know, finding someone like Philippa Schuyler, who I write about in Vietnam in the 1960s, but I also write about her childhood and her upbringing. I, I just found her a really compelling character to write about and a familiar character to write about because I saw so much of myself in her for lots of reasons that made her an easy person to kind of travel with um, as I was researching and writing the book, just because there were so many aspects of her upbringing and experiences as a young girl that you could tell made travel a place where she could decide for herself who she was instead of have her parents decide who she was, have teachers and elders decide who she was. She got to decide for herself who she was, especially the more she was able to travel by herself. She traveled for much of her early life with her mom, but by the time she's a teenager and coming into her own as a piano player and being invited all over the world, she starts to go by herself and have these incredible and edifying experiences that allow her to discover who she is outside of her family, outside of her talents even. what, it, Who is Philippa um, just as as a person? what What drives her? what appeals to her. Um, that to me was just a really interesting question to kind of think about people as, as far as the categories they belong to, but also to just try to treat them as individuals with internal motivations that were shaped by early life experiences and by these early travel experiences as well that then start to become part of the, the secret sauce that made them, them tick and made them move through the world in the particular ways that they did. So yeah, a lot of it varied based on
1: people, places, time periods. Now I like that the self-making possibilities of travel combined with what you were saying kind of at the beginning of your answer, like the irony that you can, as an African-American, you can experience sometimes like the, the possibilities of America outside of America. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's these like contradictions that are... Our- our experiences. Um, But you also just mentioned to the materials that were available to you. And you just talked about earlier, like the black press and how they were kind of everywhere. I was also surprised by that. As I was reading the book and looking at the sources, I was like, wow, the black press is really, they're really everywhere. And they're really like talking to people, interviewing people quite a bit about their experiences abroad. So that was a surprise to me. So I wondered if you could talk about the research for the book, um, how how it came together and um, also did you get to go abroad for the research? Um, so what what can you share about your uh, collection of data and, and materials for the book?
0: Yeah, I mean a lot of it varied by chapter but the through line was the Black press. And that was very intentional. I really wanted to showcase the Black press as being on the front lines of this story of African Americans going abroad from newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender, the African American, but also magazines like Ebony, which I grew up reading. And so I wanted to just reflect what was being reflected in those publications, um, in part because I remember when I and maybe you had this experience as well. When I you know, first started traveling um, abroad, I remember not seeing in kind of mainstream travel publications, African-Americans being represented as travelers. And I think that in turn shapes a narrative in the US or used to shape a narrative in the US a bit less so now, but it's not entirely gone away that African-Americans don't travel. And are provincial. I mean, there tend to be these kind of stereotypes, um, even circulating among Black people. Um, you'll sometimes see on social media people say, "You know, this guy thinks that like going to Miami is is travel." So there's this kind of pervasive narrative um, among Black people, but among White people most of all, that African Americans don't travel. And I just found in the Black press just such a an obvious rejoinder to that claim that I really wanted to, to showcase and, and honor and pay tribute to. Um, and so that was one of my really kind of primary source bases for this book. And then from there, it kind of varied based on who I was writing about. So in the case of Philippa Schuyler, for example, I traveled, I didn't travel abroad, I traveled to um, Syracuse University, which has um, many of her and her family's papers. And so I was able to um, read through various letters that she wrote, through various news clippings that her mom collected, through various writings of her parents. And in particular, um, and most touchingly, this travel, um, this kind of photo album, this travel album, this scrapbook that Philip herself had compiled. She had several of them, but the one that I was able to quite literally get my hands on was one from I think 1958, and it had a series of photographs that she took while she was traveling around West Africa. And it also had this um, manual um, musical element where you could like crank it and some tunes would would come out. I still don't know enough about it, whether she, because she was a composer and pianist, whether she composed the song that it played or whether this was just the more kind of typical form of scrapbook from the 1950s that she um, had just purchased to put her her memories and and mementos in. Um, But that provided its own armchair travel experience. And then I traveled to Paris to take these tours um, and retrace the steps of of African-Americans. But more than anything, I kind of relied on my experience as an historian of slavery in Latin America and that my first book was on slavery and dress in colonial Peru. It's set in the 18th and early 19th century, a place that I've never traveled to. Of course, I've traveled to Peru, but I wasn't ever able to travel back in time. And so I feel like so much of the work of the historian is to try to recreate as much as possible these distant times and distant places. And so I was just trying to be as careful in my descriptions of these places as possible, even ones I hadn't been to, and I was trying to inform myself as much as possible through different types of sources, including travel articles written during the time period in which I set the story. Like, for example, writing about post-colonial Kenya, there was a lot of travel writing from that era that I was able to draw upon to create a sense of time and place. Um, And so a lot of it um, was not based on kind of first-hand experience, and in many cases it was. And For example, in Argentina, obviously. I have never been to Argentina in the late 1940s and 1950s, but I certainly did spend months in Buenos Aires and around the country to be able to render some of these environments. So a lot of it just depended on, on the particulars of, of each setting. But I, I tried in places that I wasn't going to be able to see with my own eyes to marshal as much information as possible and answer my own questions that would then give readers Pardon me. Give readers a sense of of an armchair armchair travel experience.
1: Yeah, that sounds like an amazing archival find in the in the Schuler archives of her scrapbooks and uh, this like rich material culture that you find along the way in the journey to. Um, research the book. That doesn't always make it into the book, but it's it's just good to know that it's there as well. Um, you never know who else would, might want to find it and, again, what else you might do with it. Um, you just mentioned this, too. So your book, your, your work as a historian, um, I wondered if you could talk about the differences between working as working with a trade press and an academic university press. I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast, since it's the New Books Network, think about books and think about publishing. Um, And I thought you were the perfect person to ask this question because your first book was called Exquisite Slaves, Race, Clothing, and Status in Colonial Lima. And you published it with Cambridge University Press, which is obviously a university press. Um, But this book is coming out of Crown, which is an imprint of random house and so what were some of the differences that you noticed in publishing uh between these like a trade press and a, and a university press
0: they were such different processes in part because with my first book as is true for so many listeners to this podcast it was based on my dissertation which i'd already written and so i wasn't starting from scratch when i started to work with cambridge um, as far as the editorial process was concerned, um, as people know, you know, with academic presses, the book goes out to readers and the editor may or may not read the book um, and is more there to connect you to the people who will read the book and to guide you through their editorial suggestions. Um, in contrast, my experience with Crown and my editor at Crown um, was really different because my editor read multiple versions of every single page and and chapter of the book um, it didn't go out to readers in the conventional sense I shared chapters with different people but the the primary reader of the the manuscript was my editor um, and so that was really instrumental because um and In my case, there was also a bit of complexity because the the editor that I first started working with, the commissioning editor for Beyond the Shores, um, ended up going to a different publishing house. And then I was um, handed over to a a new editor and we got to choose each other, but all that to say that I had two editors at at Crown. Um, And we spent a lot of time, not only with her kind of giving me line edits and, editorial suggestions, but we just spent a lot of time on the phone talking about structure, talking through um, some of the challenges of telling this story that was meant to be about a lot of different people and a lot of different places over a long time period, how to do that in a way that wouldn't feel so disjointed and episodic. And it was through those conversations with my editor, Libby, that we landed on the idea of having this set of memoir style vignettes from one chapter to another to provide more connective tissue with the chapters. And so that was a product of, of a couple phone calls and a product of her suggesting different texts for me to read, to potentially model my work off of. And so just from an editorial perspective, it was really different, but I realized as I'm, I'm saying all that, I'm also starting kind of in the middle of things. Taking a step back, it was also a very different process in terms of even getting to the publishing house. I had worked with an agent for this book. So I had the idea for the book and I had a proposal. I knew just from the research that I had done um, that most publishing houses like Penguin Random House don't take unagented submissions. So you need to have an agent submit the manuscript on your behalf and so i knew that i would need to get an agent for this project and so that in itself was a whole different process in terms of figuring out who to approach to represent me um, and to do that i read a lot of acknowledgements from various other writers who were thanking agents and i would look those agents up and figure out based on that and based on Publishers Weekly, which for folks interested in um, publishing in the, the trade press, that's a really helpful resource because it does a lot of deal announcements. And so in those deal announcements, which are a genre of writing in and of themselves, they name the the agent that's representing the author and they name the publishing house that acquired the text and then they mention the text itself. And so you can usually tell based on the combination of, of names, what sort of agent would be interested in acquiring or representing your text and what sort of publisher would be interested in acquiring your text. Um, but I had to start with getting an agent. And I had to reach out by email. In some cases you have to reach out via their websites um, and give her a brief summary of of what I was working on and sent the proposal the book I ended up writing looks nothing like the proposal I submitted, and in fact looked nothing like the extended version of the proposal that she and I worked on for almost two years, Um, so even that's different, like it's not often the case that the book that you submit to an academic press will look so different than the book that comes out, whereas in my case, and a lot of that just had to do with the particularities of the story I was telling that the, the proposal looks so different from the, the final product. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it just kind of depends on on the, the kind of book that you're writing. And mine was so far away from the book I published with Cambridge. I mean, this is a historical text, but more recent history. Um, and it's within the genre of African American history, despite me being trained as a historian of, of Latin America. So there were differences on that front as well, just kind of stepping outside my my intellectual comfort zone and my kind of writerly comfort zone as well, just moving from writing about other people to, to writing about myself. So some of that is more specific to my topic than to the, the question of what it's like to write for an academic press compared to, a trade press, but I think the, the core differences have to do with the the nature of the the role of the editor in academic compared to trade publishing, and the nature of the 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 need for an agent when it comes to trade publishing. That it's just a, a world that operates by different norms, and they have key players that help you navigate that world. Mm-hmm. Um, And then I guess the other difference has had to do with the way books are are marketed by trade presses. Um, They have a different understanding of of audience. I think often it depends on, again, on the book, but with academic presses, you know, so often the presses are thinking about libraries and university libraries and thinking about course adoption. Um, And so that tends to be where most of the marketing budget goes um, and, usually the publishers are at at conferences. um, Whereas with trade publishing, there's a different sense of of who is reading the book and a different kind of apparatus in place to get the book before those readers and get attention um, on the book. So just in that sense, it's been a really interesting process. It occurs to me too, that there could be more kind of learning from both sides because I think sometimes trade presses aren't always so attentive to the kind of academic reader, to the course adoption market, to university libraries. And I think as far as academic presses are concerned, there's not always, for the most part, I mean, I think something like Harvard University Press is a little bit different. Um, but I think in general, the the, the way things work in, in academic publishing is to not always think of the lay person as our reader. And a lot of that has to do with the writing. And I guess that's the other thing I would point out that In writing for an academic press, I was asking and being asked different things of myself as a writer, Hmm. that it was very clear to me that I've always tried to write excessively, even when writing about 18th century Peru, but it was clear to me that I needed to write this book differently and to reach the audience I wanted to reach, which is the people who are are similar to the people I write about, like especially the people I write about in the latter half of the book, many of whom are still alive in their 70s and 80s. I wanted those people to pick up the book and enjoy reading the book and not feel like there was someone who was using impenetrable prose and inaccessible prose and was alienating them from the experience of, of reading the book and getting into the story. So I just you know, challenged myself to be a different sort of writer. And I took, so I enrolled in some writing workshops. I formed a group of some fellow historians at my previous institution at the University of Toronto who were all interested in creative nonfiction. And we really leaned into the task of thinking about the the writing, not just the research and the argument, but the writing itself as an important ingredient in the process. And so that to me was also the joy of it and the thing I'll take with me no matter what kind of writing I do from here on out is just to really think about the, the importance of, of writing and storytelling and scene setting, stage setting, like things that, you know, I, I thought I was, I was, was doing a, a decent job of in my first book, but that I really prioritize in this book. Like, how do you make people who have never thought much about the past or who have never been to these places feel like they're there? And give them a sense of the sights and smells and sounds of this place that does ask something different of you as a writer than the the typical things we're grappling with in scholarly writing. But again, I think those are things that will make scholarly writing more accessible to people um, because we have so many stories that we tell as scholars and so much research that we do that it's a shame doesn't reach broader audiences and Sometimes that's about marketing, but sometimes that's about things that are more within our control, which is which is the writing and the structure. Um, there are other things that aren't always in our control in terms of the demands of the profession and the expectations that different disciplines have of, of the kinds of writing we do and the kinds of, of structures we implement in our writing. Um, so I recognize all that, but one thing that I did find really interesting and that I really have been changed by was the attention that I was able to give to to writing in particular, and structure and storytelling in this book.
1: Yeah, I found the writing of the book to be really beautiful. So I loved uh, um, the the turn of phrase and the I could I noticed these like beautifully crafted sentences and. Um, the, as you said, like the scene setting and the description, um, it was all there. And I thought, wow, she's a beautiful writer um, in this, you know, in this book. So it really did, um, it really did come through. And I know that readers will enjoy that. And I know that it's also accessible. It was, um, you know, easily read and not, not that the content, you know, was easy, but I, I read it and it was very, it was very clear, like what was going on and what people were, were doing, which made it you know, it made it very enjoyable and, you know, you were able to kind of get lost in the places, um, you know, as, as you were taking us to these different uh, locations.
0: And, you know, uh, I would just add, just now that you say that, um, and thank you for the, the compliment. Um, I also think it's kind of imperative that we as scholars write more accessibly, um, especially given how interested you know, readers are these days, and I think about this as an historian, so many readers are are interested in historical topics, but a lot of historians, and they're interested in reading about them, they're interested in podcasts about them, they're interested in social media content about these historical topics, but a lot of historians aren't reaching out to those readers, aren't making our work accessible to those readers, um, and it leaves a vacuum because it means that the people who are producing that content are often amateur historians, people who have particular kinds of agendas, and who are having a particular kind of impact on narratives about the past, and that's something that clearly has political import um, right now in, in the U.S. context. But it applies to lots of different disciplines, and so I think there's also something that's really imperative for scholars when it comes to recognizing that there actually is quite a lot of interest in our, our disciplines and in the topics that we study. and the proof is in the proliferation of content, multi-platform content in these areas. But the thing that is also noticeable is how absent professional scholars are from these platforms and therefore from these conversations and from the conclusions that people then draw about our subjects. And so we're in many ways um, in danger of being left behind and in some cases already being left behind. So there's something, that is not just kind of a matter of of preference and, and kind of opportunity, but also a a matter of, uh, it's kind of an existential issue when it comes to some of our our work.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that definitely the kind of material that you include in your book and that many academics write about is critical, um, particularly in this moment of thinking about, um, you know, attacks on like African-American studies and, uh, you know, all of the political things that are going on. Um, I think that we have something really valuable to share and contribute. Um, and, and you're right, there is a a ton of interest in, um, in history in general, in African-American history, in African-American culture and life. And so, um, yeah, I would say just keep uh, keep putting it out there, and I think that's also kind of part of the purpose of this podcast is to like further propel and further lift up that work so that people can again easily access it by listening to you know what you're saying and then going out and buying the book and either, you know reading the book, listening to the book, um, accessing that material in whatever capacity they can, um, and so so thank you so much for for being on the podcast um i tend to end with this question of uh what are you working on next so now that beyond the shores is out it's it's in the world for people to pick up and read um what what are your upcoming projects like what do you have on the horizon um and are you planning any upcoming travel as well (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, in terms of upcoming projects, at the same time that I was working on Beyond the Shores, I also signed a contract with an academic press to write a book on race, gender, and visual culture in Latin America um, that focuses on Peru and the Andes, as well as Argentina, the Southern Cone, and Brazil and Mexico that puts all these regions in a comparative frame and looks at particular types of visual media, media across time and across these different spaces to think about the place of people of African descent within the visual culture of Latin America. And so that's a project I've been at work on and and continuing to to work on. My work on that project has kind of evolved over the course of writing Beyond the Shores, just back to the subject of kind of how we write and structure stories because I had so much fun. Once I figured out the structure of Beyond the Shores, Really try to bring some of the lessons from that to this project, and so it means that the the book that I'm currently writing is a lot different than the proposal I initially wrote for that project, but in a way that I think is in better service to the material and to the audiences that I hope this material will reach. Um, and so that that's the the looming project that I'm working on right now, um, and it involves travel to. Latin America, um, but also to Europe. And over the course of this past year, I've been doing a fair amount of travel for this book, including to archives in in England and in Mexico. A lot of it is kind of specific to the particular types of artistic media that I'm focused on for this project. And right now I'm just coming off of some, some work-related travel and I'm hoping to make room for a bit more vacation travel. I don't know if you have this experience, but as someone who writes about other places, it's easy to think of travel as kind of a perk of the job, but then what tends to happen is that I'm only ever traveling for work or feeling like that's the only kind of thing I should be doing <laughs> when I'm traveling rather than having any sort of, you know, vacation experience or non-scholarly experience of, of a place. and um, so I'm trying to change my thinking with things like that. But in the meantime, I'm doing some travel for, uh, beyond the shores where I'll be giving, a reading at a bookstore in my home state of Colorado, um, at this bookstore, the tattered cover, which is a bookstore I grew up loving. Um, and so that's on August 14th and i'll be going to toronto where i used to live and where i wrote much of beyond the shores when i was a faculty member at the university of toronto um i'll be giving a book talk at a different book list and um i think that's it for the the short term but there's there's more book events on on the horizon so that's been at least the the bulk of my travel um research and and book related travel but i think that's that's the way of the academic
1: no, it, def- it definitely is. When travel becomes your job, it's like, well, yeah. then, then then what's what's leisure? <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, staying home. I don't I don't know, but I'm just, huh, right. for different people, it's it's going to be different. Things.
0: Yeah, I still need to figure that out.
1: <laughs> I I do too, um, and so we'll look out for those for that work. Congratulations on the signing the contract for the new book. That's exciting to think about. Uh, visual culture and race in those different countries in Latin America so I'll be on the lookout for that and um, it's also uh, you know good good luck and best wishes on these uh, on going and giving these book talks for beyond the shores I'm sure that people will um, enjoy it and and you know gain as much from it as as I did in reading it so that'll be that'll be wonderful. Um, So thank you so much for sharing your work with us. I've been talking to Dr. Tamara J. Walker, who's the author of the book, Beyond the Shores, A History of African-Americans Abroad, published by Crown, a trademark of Penguin Random House. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thanks for reading it.